Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm privileged to continue serving as the host for Franklin Covey and what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast airing every Tuesday and Friday where each week, twice a week, we have the privilege of shining our spotlight onto some of the world's most renowned best-selling authors, business titans, thought leaders, people that have survived remarkable tragedies, and others that have summoned the both vulnerability and courage and also transparency to bring their own journeys to this podcast. In the spirit of our co-founder's principal, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, about being an abundant leader, we try to be a model of that and shine our spotlight onto people that have great insight to make you a better leader, whether it's in your organization or with your family, which is why today we have the enormous privilege of interviewing the author of a new book releasing this week. His name is Matt Gutman. You know him as an ABC News correspondent. He appears frequently on the Evening News 2020, Good Morning America. And today he's going to have a very vulnerable conversation with us about his new book called No Time to Panic, How I Curbed My Anxiety and Conquered a Lifetime of Panic Attacks. Matt, welcome to On Leadership. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much. It's really good to be with you. Matt, I feel like I know you because I've been following you on Instagram for several years. Uh, And I'm sorry that my set is upstaging your set. It happens sometimes. By a mile. Yeah. I mean, I'm in a newsroom, so... The other side of it is kind of busy. I don't know if you can see. Oh, don't flaunt it, um, Matt. Don't swing flaunt it. The ca- nah, but I mean, I wish I could. Yeah. This, anyway, so you have a box and a chair behind me. But um, I, I love the way you introduced the show. I love the concept, um, Covey concept of abundance um, and gratitude. And your, your, just, your, your introduction is, is just perfect. I think it perfectly sets the stage for a book like mine, which we're talking about today. Matt, I'm clearly gunning for your job, so up your game, bro. You beat me on the hair, which is rare these days. Uh, Matt, Matt, your book is called No Time to Panic. You've been very uncharacteristically for a lot of celebrities or for media personalities, which you are both, I'd argue, to really talk about what your journey has been. You've really given voice to what is kind of the the still yet talked about end of mental illness to the extent that's part of that genre. You talk about how it needs to be spotlighted and talked about and made more mainstream and named and giving people the courage to talk about it and tools to deal with it. Your book is a extraordinarily practical, almost a memoir on your struggle with your very public panic attacks, sometimes near career ending panic attacks that have put you in the spotlight of of sometimes being suspended, of really you reconsidering, is this the right career for you? You have been in war zones. You have risked your life to report on, on you know, mind-numbing occurrences around the world. You had a particular instance, we don't need to talk about it today, that made you really reflect on how you need to get a hold of your panic. Matt, for those who haven't yet bought your book or are getting ready to buy it on Amazon during this interview, would you rewind a couple of decades about your career, your experience with your panic attacks, and maybe you'd start with the opening story in your book about your father's early passing. You know, I think the, a number of these things are entwined, right? So um, the panic attack you mentioned that essentially changed the trajectory of my career happened on January 26, 2020. Um, I was reporting on the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash, uh, probably one of the biggest stories in LA where I'm based in, in years at the time. Um, 
and you know subterraneanly in my brain there are a lot of processes that were going on that were subconscious and i was not fully aware of them one of them is that my dad um, was killed in a plane crash when I was 12, basically the exact same age as Gianna Bryant, and my dad was the same age as Kobe Bryant. Um, and so as I'm beginning to report this story, a lot of this stuff begins to percolate. And I'd had hundreds of panic attacks live on air before I always came through, right? Um, executive producers would say, wow, Matt Gutman is great live because he really punches through. He has that energy that just gets right through the camera. Well, part of that is that I was like surging with adrenaline and then cortisol afterwards. So that was part of what was fueling it. So my secret weapon was also my kryptonite. Um, but in this instance, I made a factual error in my reporting that was catastrophic. Um, as you mentioned, and I, I don't want to get into it out of deference to the Bryant family, but it defined my career. And basically, I, I came to a point where I, I knew I'd been having panic attacks for years, basically my whole career. And I needed to either figure out the panic attacks or leave TV news because I was miserable. I was it was making me, you know, less of a good employee, um, a less good father, less good husband. I was not happy. I needed to figure this out now. And so I basically spent the next three and a half years trying quite literally almost every single remedy for anxiety and panic in trying to figure it out. Um, and uh, I don't know if there is a solution. If there were a magic bullet or a magic pill, I'd have like four of them by now, but I haven't found it yet. Um, so, you know, it's a lot about the work on, on, on oneself and it is a very long process, but there is light at the end of the tunnel that I can assure people. Matt, we're gonna spend time getting into some of those uh, remedies, if you would, and what your own experience has been with many of them. But first, I want to take a moment and differentiate between panic attacks and chest pain and real heart attacks. I think you mentioned in your book there is about 8 million instances right. every year where people think they're having a heart attack. Talk about how that presents itself and kind of how to know when you're having a heart attack and when you're having a panic attack. Okay, so the symptoms of a panic attack are as unique as someone's fingerprint, right? So I tend to get uh, shortness of breath, uh, tightness in the chest a little bit. Um, rapid heart rate, um, I begin to sweat, tremble, tunnel vision, uh, loss of memory. Um, other people have a real sense of impending death. This is why a lot of people, they feel that tightness in the chest, shortness of breath, they think they're having a heart attack. There's also derealization. You're sort of like, are you hallucinating? Are you in reality? What's going on? Um, I don't have that. I have a fear of loss of control as well. So these are some of the symptoms. You can have some all or you know a combination of them they happen to almost perfectly mirror the symptoms of a heart attack and i interviewed a 911 operator who'd been doing this for 17 years and she said in all her calls it's almost impossible for her whose ears are literally trained to tell the difference to be able to discern between a heart attack and a panic attack which is why out of the eight million eight million americans who present at er's with chest pain thinking that they're dying of a heart attack Three million of them, 40% are actually having a panic attack. 40% are having a panic attack when they think that they're having a heart attack. The numbers are astronomical. And only 1% to 2% of them, Scott, are actually treated for panic and anxiety and release. The rest are told, uh, you're probably not having a heart attack. Maybe it's anxiety. We're not exactly sure what it is. But go home, come back if it happens again, which then sends people into a spiral of additional fear and anxiety. So it's massively pervasive 
much more common than we think. And the lifetime incidence of a panic attack for an American is 28%. So it's very likely that 28% um, of Americans will experience a panic attack in their lifetime. Panic experts believe it's closer to 50%. Uh, that's a lot of people. Matt, we're going to get heavy on some of your own journey in a moment here. You've mentioned that you have either researched or tried nearly everything. We'll talk about that in a few moments. Everything from psychiatry to psychedelics to psychics. On, on a lighter note, you talk about the psychic experience barely. What was that like when you went to a psychic in between your psychiatrist work and your psychedelic work? What was it like to see a psychic for your, 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 your desperate attempts to get on hold or curb your anxiety? So I wasn't kidding when I said that I would try everything. And I have a high school friend who works in PR and she had an experience with a client who is a psychic and she swore by this person. I'm not going to name names. Uh, she's like, I, I don't believe in it myself, but I got to tell you, it was uncanny. It was one of the most powerful, impactful experiences of my life. I found healing. Her father also died when she was exactly the same age. Uh, we didn't yet know each other. So I was like, okay, I mean, uh, you know, I trust this person. I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to believe. Uh, we do the psychic thing, and she gives me a two-hour reading, and it was not cheap. It took months to set up, and I'm like, I'm waiting. I'm all excited for it. I'm like, what am I going to learn? And it was just like this person was throwing ball after ball. There were no strikes. Like I, she had walked home runners by the time that, like, something hit. It was – almost embarrassing and like you know i start like giggling at the end it was really uncomfortable uh we said for a while you know nicely but that was doing the psychics thing was not going to work for me maybe there are others for whom it worked it did not work for me uh in that instance it was it was a pretty big miss um but yeah like that's the thing i was willing to try anything scott to try to fix this to try to figure out why it is and how to make it better Matt, a few months ago, I had the privilege of interviewing the founder of GoDaddy. He also uh, owns a huh. very popular golf club chain and golf courses and such, Bob Parsons. And, uh, you know, multi-successful billionaire, huge philanthropist. And he talked in this interview, he was a Vietnam veteran, suffers from panic attacks and PTSD. And he talked about how he had experienced, is it ayahuasca? I think is the right phrase. Yeah. You talk about that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. It's becoming increasingly mainstream for people with PTSD, anxiety, or panic attacks to work through some type of, you might call it alternative intervention, whether it's you know mushrooms or ayahuasca or ketamine, you, you talk about that. You also had a, a somewhat similar experience where you opened the book with this toad Mexican monkey thing or whatever it was. Will you talk about that <laughs> and what you learned from it? Okay, so we'll start with ayahuasca. You know, I'm so glad you brought this up, and I'm so interested to hear about Mr. Parsons. Um, that's the thing. There are so many successful people, people who you think have everything, who are actually suffering panic attacks. Like we have a friend. He's a multimillionaire CEO, um, massively successful, good-looking guy, great family, great house, has everything, wakes up in the night with his hair on fire, sweating, having these night terrors of panic attacks. Um, and he's on like, he's taking uh, benzos, Xanax uh, to treat it and it helps him, but he still has them. I think it's surprising how many people um, who have reached certain levels in, in society and business who experience this, um, which surprised me. And I learned about it when I became willing 
important to reveal my biggest, darkest secret, which is this vulnerability that I have panic attacks. So I, I think that's one of the reason that so many men especially gravitate towards the psychedelics, especially ayahuasca, which is not a fun experience. Um, it's because in our day-to-day head states, it's hard to get vulnerable. It's hard to reach that pit in you, uh, that bottomless well. I call it the well of grief inside many of us where we contain sadness and grief and the pain that we experienced in childhood or whatever it is. Um, and the only way we can really get there is by entering altered states. Now, your friend Wim Hof, um, holotropic breathwork can get you to an altered state, um, but so can ayahuasca in a deeper, more meaningful, revealing way. Um, and, you know, on this retreat, we were actually 11 guys and one woman. That's how heavily skewed it was towards the men who are trying to find ways to get to that part of vulnerability, get to their subconscious that they couldn't reach through therapy, psychology, pharmacology, um, that they needed some other avenue, and which I think is why so many people are beginning to gravitate towards the ayahuascas and the 5-MeO-DMT, the Sonoran Desert Toad, um, mescaline, et cetera, all you know, these psychedelics that have become also pretty readily available these days. Your experience, was it, was it with, was it, Cambo? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Cambo's the, the monkey tree frog, the, yes. the, the, the giant monkey frog. Give us, give, give us just an executive summary on that experience. <laughs> so this is the only one that actually doesn't have a psychedelic component. So you don't feel that much in your head. Um, what ends up happening is uh, it creates this like inflammatory, crazy reaction in your body. Your face puffs up. You get massively sick to your stomach. Um, you basically think like you, it feels like you've had the worst stomach and other flu that you've had in your life. And it's through the catharsis, often through purging, uh, sometimes from both ends, that you end up feeling euphoric afterwards. And it helps people um, achieve altered states without actually taking a drug that changes your, your mind frame. Um, wasn't the best for me. Again, you know, I, I have trouble like getting it all out and up. So it was just pretty much pure pain. But I got into that point in my journey that I was looking for purging opportunities for ways to get to that point of pain, of suffering, um, of altered states uh, in order to get at the pain in a way of treating whatever this stuff is that is inside me that I felt like I needed to get out. Um, and it was hard to reach in my day to day. So, yeah, you- I don't recommend. I mean, a lot of people love it, but, I, you know, I'm not sure I would do it again. Do a lot of people love it or a lot of people have done it? <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of people have done it. I don't know any, any single person who has actually loved it because it's just painful. It's literally giving yourself a short-term stomach flu. Was that George uh, Stephanopoulos or who was that you were waving to right there? Who was that? Does, uh, Brian Muir? That right was Brian? not George. That yeah, was not George. Yoni no. Mintz. There you go. Uh, let's talk about the fact that you've tried everything. I mean, literally, you've been through every yeah. process, so you also can report on it. Let's run through a couple of the things. One is, in the book you talk about, one solution is not to let it fester, to talk about it and be comfortable mm. talking about it. In your book, you almost wrote that it kind of for you was a coming out of sorts to say, I have this crippling issue, I need to get on top of it, or I've got to do other things professionally. Talk about the value of not letting it fester, including and maybe especially in men. So, you know, a couple of things. I just want to note that I did all of these psychedelics uh, and other treatments, not as like a Hunter S. Thompson romping across Vegas in a convertible Chevy Caprice, 
uh, you know, high, I was on a couch with a psychiatrist, a clinical nurse, or a guide who specialized in this each and every time. Um, so I took it very, very seriously. Um, but so, so that's the, the one part of trying everything. The other to address your question is that, yeah, letting things fester just obviously makes it worse. Um, and I had my last full on panic attack on ABC News on December 4th, 2020. Um, basically, I felt like, you know, a pretty conventional panic attack, but it was overwhelming. And when I tried to speak, when the director threw to me, I felt like the sound that came out of my mouth was the sound that a chicken makes laying an egg. I was like, egg. Um, I was so ashamed and so embarrassed of myself that yet it happened again. I thought I'd beaten panic, but I hadn't. And so, you know, I lugged my shame and my, you know, post live shot defeat hangover to a Southwest flight. And I sat next to a lady who was crocheting because you choose your own seats on Southwest, which is wonderful, actually, sometimes. And I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to this. This lady's really calming. I'm just going to chat and watch her do her crochet. Um, we ended up having a conversation. I ended up getting deeper and deeper. And I did something with her that I'd never done with anyone else, which is reveal the secret that I, I have panic attacks on air, like real big ones. And she didn't judge me. It turned out that her daughter suffers from severe uh, panic disorder uh, and has for many, many years. And it's affected their family. And she just accepted me and accepted it in a way that I hadn't expected. Then I started telling colleagues and friends and everybody accepted it in a way I didn't think was possible. And so I was like, oh, this talking about it is good medicine. This is good. Um, I then sought out panic attack support groups. The problem is you can find, you know, an Al-Anon and an AA group anywhere in the country. But there are only three panic attack support groups, three in the whole country that are open to the public. Um, others are maybe attached to hospitals. But, you know, I went through the American Psychological Association. I went through the, uh, uh, the ADAA. Um, all these groups, there are very, very few. It was massively frustrating. And at that point, I understood that I had a constituency of more than one. This is not just about me. This is about millions of Americans who are underdiagnosed with panic or panic disorder and who are underserved because there are no panic attack support groups. There's no early intervention like there is about brushing our teeth. Uh, nobody knows anything about mental health, certainly not panic and anxiety. And I realized you know, I needed to talk about this and I needed to do it publicly. In your book, you review a variety of options, right? Not letting it fester, breathing, crying, moving, meditating, cognitive behavioral therapy, pharmacology, ketamine, mushrooms, ayahuasca, hypnosis, and others. Matt, could you tell us no person's panic is the same as someone else's exactly? Is, have you uncovered kind of what is the right collection of resources, tools, medications, therapy for mm. you? I think that's a great question. Um, I think it's always changing. I, the one thing that I know works is being open about it and being vulnerable about it. Um, for me, that has been some of the best medicine, as I just mentioned. Um, taking care of your body, being gentle, you know, um, just the real basics, getting sleep, getting exercise, nutrition. Like those three things have so much to do with our mental state. Uh, beyond that, taking a couple of minutes to try to have, be mindful uh, to practice some sort of meditation, even if just 
five breaths at a time. There are all sorts of interventions that we can do in our day-to-day that can just help prevent a panic from coming in the first place and from uh, having it, you know, swing out of control if it does happen. And if you want to go farther, you know, psychedelics, if pharmacology doesn't work for you, then psychedelics are an avenue that lots of people are choosing right now. But really, it's being okay with yourself. And, you know, I had this drill sergeant in my head, Scott, for so many years. It just kept telling me I was a failure, kept telling me I sucked, kept telling me every time I'm on air, like, oh, you're about to panic. You're panicking now. Look, there you just panic. You loser. You're terrible. So I've tried to retire that drill sergeant. Sometimes he comes back, uh, but mostly he's just like sitting on a beach somewhere in Florida, sipping pina coladas. I hope he has a, a good time there. Um, so I'm less judgmental of myself, less angry at myself if I descend into anxiety because it is normal. Like we are humans who depend on the cooperation of other humans. And we are exquisitely sensitive to the behavior um, and the mannerisms of other humans around us. It is an adaptation. It is the secret sauce, right? Being the sensitive. Sometimes it goes haywire. Sometimes it goes to extremes and we have anxiety attacks or panic attacks, but that's normal and it's okay. Better to have a panic attack or an anxiety attack, which is, you know, a false alarm than missing an alarm. Because if you miss an alarm, you're on, you know, we're, we're in New York. So if you're on I-95, I live in LA, if you're on the 101 and there's a pileup in front of you and your body is not primed to act with a stress response, you're going to die. So I think that people shouldn't beat themselves up. Um, They should know that it's normal, it's pervasive, and it's okay if it happens. Matt, after your incident uh, with ABC and they suspended you and CNN and others, you know, took delight in kicking your ass, you you went into exile, so to speak, self-exile in Alaska. Wonderful story in the book about what you call the good panic. Would you take as much time as you like, talk about what happened after your suspension, which you talk respectfully about and very openly about, and then something interesting happened in Alaska. Why'd you go to Alaska? What happened? What'd you learn from it? I went to Alaska partly because, you know, suspension happens to open up your schedule pretty nicely. Uh, I had a lot of time. I wanted to option a book about a sled dog family, a family that, that trains sled dogs. And, uh, and I've been talking to them for a long time. They have a great children's book, and I, I just needed to get away from Los Angeles, I just needed to get out. Um, so I exiled myself to, uh, to Alaska in February, Fairbanks, uh, which averages, I don't know, like zero degrees, literally zero degrees in the winter, but it was amazing. So like when I got there, the first thing they had me do <clears throat> is work with the dogs by cleaning up their pee and their poo. And um, there's nothing quite as satisfying as freeing a disc of, of pee frozen. It's like a blink. And so I go around and the dogs are just so loving and fun. And I was the custodian the, for a couple of days there, just cleaning them up. Um, so I spent a few days with, with those people who were wonderful. And then I drove down to Anchorage. I don't know, it was like a five, six hour drive. And I stopped at Denali. And there's like a side mountain nearby. And I thought I'd hike. And it's, again, the middle of winter. And I start running up the trail and, you know, pretty decent shape and just enjoying the mountain air and it was probably seven degrees uh, which is balmy in february and there's almost nobody on the path and after a while there's literally nobody um you know i know his buddy bunnies skittering over the snow and uh, i'm just luxuriating in this jack london 
view that I have. I, I scramble up to the top of this mountain. Um, there's no track as it's been snowed over. And I'm just like in a storybook. And for me, it's heaven because, you know, I love nature and I got nature drunk. And I'm just like, wow, you know, like the hills are alive with the sound of music. I'm twirling. And uh, I start to come down the mountain. But I couldn't come the way I'd climbed because it was too steep. So I thought I'd sort of like circle around, do a staircase, a spiral staircase way down. And it was really fun initially, Scott, because I'm like humbling in the snow and like doing somersaults. And it's great because the snow is so deep. It's like at my knees and then at my hips. Now I can't tumble anymore. and It's deeper and deeper. And I'm getting stuck in sort of a ravine uh, in, in, in the fold of the mountain. And I keep trying to find shallower snow, but I keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in it. And then I'm over my head in snow. I can't get out. And uh, it felt like I was in a cold quicksand. And I start to like feel suffocation because the snow is light and thin and fluffy and I can't get rid of it and I can't move. And suddenly I, I feel the telltale sign of the stress response, right? Adrenaline shooting into uh, the big muscles in my body, my heart rate increasing to take in more oxygen, cortisol coming in afterwards to pump glucose into my muscles to give them more energy. And one of the things that happens to you in a stress response, which is great if you're lost in the Alaskan wilderness, but not so good if you're delivering, you know, 15 seconds of television, is your short-term memory is great. Your long-term memory goes away. And your GPS, your internal GPS goes into overdrive. So I knew exactly where I was and where I had to go. And suddenly I had this clarifying notion that I have to get light, like the snowshoe hair. Snowshoe hair, snowshoe hair. Yes, I've got to get on top of the snow. So I scramble my way over to a tree. And it's so deep in the snow that just the crown of this spruce is above. And I start ripping off branches and I stick them into my jacket and shirt and pants Oh, by the way, I have like no food and water because that was dumb. Um, and I basically make myself into a giant Christmas tree. And <laughs> that's how I like flop my way out of like the deepest part of the snow by making myself into a human snowshoe. Uh, and an hour later, I find the trail again and I crawl out like a shipwrecked sailor. And, I'm like, ah! and I, I, I produce this exalted, like crazy video for my kids that I've never shown them. They'll never see. Um, just like so grateful to be alive. But also realizing, like, I had just had a panic attack on air that almost destroyed my career. And here, just a couple of weeks later, I had a stress response, which is the same thing that basically saved my life. So there's the flip side, right? That's the same thing that kicks in when you're driving on the highway and you see a pile up in front of you and you take actions that you're not even thinking of. Your body just reacts because it knows what to do because adrenaline has kicked in, cortisol moved in afterwards. And that's what we are primed to do. Um, you know, again, you don't want that to happen all the time, but when you need it, it sure is helpful. I have a little bit of claustrophobia. It's actually gotten a little more severe as I have aged. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm serious, right? Sorry. I, I have so, to, oh, I didn't know. I thought I made uh, it worse. I'm so sorry. You didn't. Uh, but it's, uh, I recognize that when I get into a van or a bus, I have to sit in the front row or the second row, not because of selfishness. I can't sit in the third or fourth seat as I'll start to feel mm -hmm. a little bit panicked. Uh, as you were telling your story, Sorry I was getting that, uncomfortable. Scott. I was getting uncomfortable thinking about you having the snow come in on you. Uh, your book really is 
a navigation. It's a, it's a great guide for people that are suffering from panic attacks and anxiety, for people who have um, loved ones, colleagues, employees. It's a great book to um, read to help you navigate all the options. I think one of the biggest gifts in our final moments here, Matt, you give the reader is you talk about false alarms. I mean, you really researched, as you would expect from an ABC journalist, you researched this book well. Send us off with some of the caveats and ideas you have around watching for false alarms. So, you know, there are two primary fears that humans have, right? And so I had like a, a months long jag into evolutionary science. Like I couldn't understand, Scott, why you have that fear of, of closed spaces, right? Why do you have claustrophobia? Why do I have panic speaking publicly? Like, how are these fears still in the human genome when they're so bad for us, right? They cause bad health, they have negative health consequences. How come we haven't adopted out of them? And so going to evolutionary first biologists like Robert Sapolsky, who might have had on your show at some point, um, and then Randy Nessie, who is the father of evolutionary psychiatry, um, I learned that anxiety was like the human secret sauce. Learning to be scared sooner is what allowed uh, primates on the savanna to avoid being eaten. Uh, it allowed them to conserve a lot of cal calories. And uh, anxiety and fear and thinking about the future and worrying about future consequences is what allowed humans to learn how to plan and make hunts and have festivals, make lots more babies, make cave art. It allowed for all these different things that make us who we are. Sometimes they go overboard, but we are wired as a species to have false alarms so that we never have a missed alarm, which is why Randy Nessie, the evolutionary psychiatrist says, panic is normal. It's good, not good but it happens, it's normal. And you shouldn't hate yourself or feel shame for having it because it's your body doing what it does, which is having a false alarm. Now, we don't want those false alarms to happen that often because they're highly inconvenient, they're painful, and they can have some negative consequences. But people don't die from panic. You're not gonna die, it's not even gonna ruin your health. Uh, I've spent a lot of time researching this. I thought that was the case, it's not. Anxiety chronically is really bad for you, but panic attacks are not the end of the world. Um, and so that's what this evolutionary science taught me. And it was such a relief to know that I'm not slowly killing myself by having these panic attacks and that there actually is an evolutionary reason. Um, they're also, I don't know if this is too much, but there are what are called evolutionary bottlenecks. Like every so once in a while, there is a really big giant catastrophe and the worry warts of the group end up surviving and carrying on the gene. And that's basically what happens. Like sometimes it really pays to worry, not all the time, but sometimes. Matt, I wanna read a quick passage out of your book because I think it will speak to why people that have panic in their lives, family, extended colleagues or themselves, will enjoy your book. You talk about how you tried everything from antidepressants to ADHD medications to Xanax to anti-seizure medications, mindfulness, meditation. You ate while you exercised. Uh, this is a time when medication wasn't exactly that mainstream. You required some sleight of hand. Medication masked, or sorry, meditation masked as napping. The popping of a pill cloaked in a cough gulping air like a free diver in the minute before a live report to avoid hypoxia on camera. 
you developed a series of pre-live shot rituals that included push-ups and sometimes cigarettes. You indulged in magical thinking. There were a couple of lucky pairs of underwear in rotation that you bought in Paris during the, the um, terrorist attacks. I read that passage because you're extraordinarily real in this book. People that have panic attacks will relate to their own cocktail of solutions. As we end this conversation, what advice would you give people that are experiencing panic attacks right now, what their first step might be? You had 12 steps in that one paragraph. Any advice you would give to people that don't know where to turn, they're feeling overwhelmed by it, what should they do first? Ditch the magic underwear. Magic underwear do not work. I, I now have proven this. But you had category. them in rotation, so they were at least clean. <laughs> I had a couple. Actually, it came with, it was a three-pack, so I lost one, but there were two. But no, it's like you don't want to have these rituals. Um, these are called safety behaviors in cognitive behavioral therapy, and they're not. You think that they're making you safer. You think that they might be helping you with the panic, but they're actually begetting the panic because you're priming your body to think it's going to be under threat. And the panic itself is just 15 to 60 seconds of your body's and your brain's appraisal of a threat. Is this thing a threat? If not, I'm gonna move on. And 60 seconds later, it is over. It's just the assessment of the threat. So if people can get past those 60 seconds, they're gonna be okay. The rest of it is just anxiety. And almost all of us suffer anxiety in some form or another every day. But the smoking, the pills, the masking of the meditation, the gulping of air, none of that worked. It just served to tell my brain that I'm about to be in trouble. So go about your lives normally, do meditation, do you know breath work, all that stuff that's good for you, but don't have like a whole you know lineup of weird twitches like I did um, that you think are gonna help you get through your day if, you're, if you have a panic attack. Those simply don't work. Taking care of your mind, taking care of your body, if you want, do therapy, do pharmacology. Those help a lot of people, not all the people. Um, if you want to do the psychedelics, that has also helped a lot of people. I'm not a doctor. I can't recommend all of them. The only thing I can say for sure is that panic is normal, it's pervasive, and it's fleeting. It's going to end within 15 to 60 seconds. And everybody listening can get through it and probably has. Matt Gutman, ABC News national correspondent. Please tell Michael... And uh, Robin and George Scott Miller said, hello, your new book is called I No will. Time to Panic, How I Curbed My Anxiety and Conquered a Lifetime of Panic Attacks. Matt, your book's a gift. Thanks for your vulnerability again. I think you're going to receive rave reviews on this uh, bestseller. Yeah. Appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Scott. Really appreciate it. It was fun. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>